Today's episode is sponsored by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. It's easy and fun to use as well as affordable. And did you know that science shows meditation can reduce anxiety and improve your relationships? Head to expectful.com slash motherbirth for an exclusive one month free trial just for motherbirth listeners. We're entering people's bodies. And we are entering people's bodies um, during times when perhaps they're feeling very vulnerable or without a lot of power, without a lot of voice. Um, And we're entering people's bodies in similar ways to how they have sex and how they experience intimacy with their partners. We believe that not just babies are born, mothers are born too. We're your hosts, Lara, a labor and delivery nurse and aspiring midwife, and Melissa, a mother and doula. Welcome to Motherbirth, a space for thought-provoking and inspirational conversations about birth and the deep exploration of what it means to become a mother. Hi, it's Laura and Lisa from Motherbirth, and we're so excited today to have Stephanie Tillman on the show. Um, Stephanie is someone that I have watched in her midwife career and just um, admired from afar, and so we're excited to have her here. Stephanie, you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. It's great to be here. Thank you both for having me. I am a midwife in Chicago, Illinois. I work at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And for a little over five years now, I've been writing a blog called The Feminist Midwife uh, based on my experiences as um, a a provider, um, kind of in um, a tricky setting of being a midwife in a physician-based world and being... um, a woman in um, a healthcare field and um, working in um, a community where um, we're constantly fighting for women's rights in healthcare. And so I like writing about those things um, and then do a lot of talking and writing about um, being a sex positive clinician, um, being a queer person, and talking about queer healthcare and trans healthcare. And um, thinking about feminism and um, humanistic sides of how we provide care to people who we're serving. So happy to talk about all those things or follow wherever the conversation goes. That sounds great. I would love to hear kind of how you got involved with women's health care initially and what led you down that path. Sure. I was actually, I listened today to the podcast, Laura, where you talk about your path to midwifery. And I feel like um, many of us come along the same path. And so it was just sort of chuckling along that, um, it's so funny how we live parallel lives and all kind of end up in the same place. Um, I was convinced from very young that I wanted to be a physician and, um, and the first person in my family to go to college. And so that was upheld as this big thing to go, not only go to college, but to study to be a physician and quickly realized, um, just based on classmates and based on people's intentions that that really wasn't, uh, the field for me. Um, even pre-med, I realized very quickly, those were not my people. Did you already have a sense of what kind of medicine you wanted to practice or was it just this kind of broader calling to like the human body? It was a calling to care for people um, and to be present with people, but I I really um, had no idea what kind of healthcare I wanted to do. Um, and so, I mean, as early as organic chemistry, I realized 
this is not for me. Um, and it wasn't because of the difficulty of the studies. It was because of the community of people and kind of what everyone was bringing to the table. And it was just very confusing to me because I knew I wanted to take care of people, but then everyone else who also supposedly wanted to take care of people, um, it just seemed like the mantras were not the same and the intentions and the conversation and language were very different. Um, so I met um, the uh, university sex educator um, and my mind was blown wide open. I didn't know that that was a thing that um, people talked about sex professionally. Um, and so really kind of hooked on to her quickly. Like, I want to know everything about what you do all the time. <laughs> and please tell me how all of this happens. And she had a master's in public health. And I really was roped in quickly to the world of public health. And um, she kindly and graciously took me under her wing. And I ultimately ended up changing my major to, um, global health, um, because I knew I wanted to be doing work abroad, uh, but then did a lot of work with her, um, in terms of teaching sex ed and doing, um, starting a peer health organization. Um, I went to the university of Michigan and that organization was called pulse. Um, and we did peer health ed in the dorms and in, um, the Greek houses, and I was just so fired up about it, how people could be sort of breaking down the power dynamics of who owns the knowledge in healthcare and how that knowledge is shared and how that could be shared in a peer-to-peer model. Um, and that was wonderful. And then um, did work abroad um, during undergrad and then uh, ultimately graduated with a global health degree with a minor in medical anthropology and worked out of DC for a few years um, doing um, microbicide research organizational support. Um, and microbicides are products that are still in development that um, people could use clandestinely without their partner knowing to prevent HIV and STI transmission. Um, so whether that's a lube or a preloaded cervical cap or um, a pre-lubricated condom, um, kind of looking into how people could be protecting themselves without their partner knowing. Um, so kind of alongside that, uh, I took a women's studies class at U of M taught by two midwives. And um, I remember vividly sitting down in that class the first day, really stoked to be learning about feminism. It hadn't been a huge part of my upbringing. Um, and so all, the whole concept was pretty foreign to me. Um, but I knew that it was part of sort of the peer-to-peer -peer health and the history of feminism, knowing that women were reclaiming their bodies and teaching each other and being present for each other. And um, I sat down in that class and um, I remember um, the two women walking onto the stage and saying, hi, I'm Lisa, hi, I'm Joanne, and we're midwives. And it was the first time I had ever heard that word before. And so not only was feminism pretty new to me, um, but then the idea of being a midwife is really new to me. And now you're called the feminist right. midwife. <laughs> <laughs> so you really latched on to both those ideas. I know. Well, and they both know um, the impact that they've had on me because anytime I see them, I just, I fall at their feet and they, they're wonderful people um, to have started on this path with. Um, 
But I had already switched my major once. My parents were already very confused what public health was. They couldn't really figure out how to explain to people that I was studying public health. They could have explained my studying to be a doctor, but public health is like, what is that? Um, so the confusion level was already high. I wasn't trying to throw it off again by then launching into midwifery. Um, but starting to work abroad and um, being more involved in public health working abroad, midwives run the show everywhere except for the U.S. <laughs> generally. Um, so midwives are the heads of clinics. They're the heads of hospitals. They are the community health worker, the primary health care provider. They take care of the community, period. And so everywhere that I was going, I was running into these midwives in impressive leadership positions and just um, really kind of changing um changing healthcare in their community, but also just in terms of like clinical provision, midwives were bossing everybody around and it was great and awesome to see. Um, and it was considered kind of this penultimate, um, nursing study. So people would go through their nursing training and then if you were the best of the best, then you became a midwife that then ran a hospital. Um, and so it just, it seemed like it kept being a conversation that was coming up in my life. Like, okay, well, I'm doing public health. And really, I thought that would mean that I would be in a community. Um, but instead, I'm sitting behind a computer all day and doing a lot of writing and really loving the writing that I was doing. But I missed being with people. And um, that calling for midwifery just kept coming back to me. And so every time I'd come back to the States or kind of settle back in, I'd reach back out to those two midwives who taught my feminist studies class to say, you know, but what if I went back to school? What if I did this other thing? Um, and after talking with them and thinking it through, um, applied to some different programs, took, um, kind of the community anatomy and physiology courses and caught back up on things that would be needed and thought about the different ways to become a midwife and what would be most important to me. And similar to Laura, um, I very much wanted to work um, with people on public aid and in communities of high need and in communities of color and bringing midwifery and being with people um, to people not necessarily on private health insurance or people who could be advocating right. for themselves mm -hmm. um, and realizing that um, being a midwife who could work in any setting not only brings me job security as someone with a whole lot of student loans and very much in need of job security, um, but also uh, would afford me that opportunity to work in any community. And so ultimately um, chose to go to Yale um, and their midwife program there um, and graduated in 2012. So I was very fortunate. Yale has one of the programs um, where the last semester is an immersion experience. Some people call it an integration. Some people call it a residency um, where we really don't have class. You're just a midwife for 40 to 60 hours a week for four-ish months. Um, and I did that um, integration experience in Chicago. And then I was hired at that site um, after I finished. And so I've been here ever since. And I'm in a wild love affair, not only with my job, but with this city. And I'm not going anywhere in either anytime soon. I love hearing your story. And it is really striking how 
you know, what the parallels are between yours and Laura's story and so many other stories that I hear. And I think it's, that's really powerful because, you know, when I asked you what kind of medicine were you drawn to, I think the answer that you gave was, was really, really telling, you know, you were just drawn to, to being with and supporting people. And, and as we all know, the, the word midwife means with woman. And there's something that is so powerful in that language alone, not just in the role and in, you know, all of the things that, that you do day in and day out, but even just in that language is something really, really powerful. And it's, it's really amazing to see. I mean, of course there are people that get jaded and there are people who, you know, don't want to do what they do anymore and, and whatever else, but you know, the majority of women that, that I know that, that are midwives or related to that support role for women in one way or another, like that's, that's the calling. And it's, it's very uh, foundational. Um, I wanted to say about your writing too, Stephanie, one of the things that um, I drew me to kind of following you and looking into you as a person, which I sound like such a fan girl talking to you now, but is that kind of going back to what you said when you had that epiphany about the university sex educators, like who owns the knowledge about healthcare? And I think when we start talking about the birth world and talking, we say midwife, everyone immediately goes to the pregnancy postpartum experience, which obviously a lot of our show and a lot of our community is based in that experience. But something that really drew me to your work is that you're asking that question about all of women's healthcare. And really directing women to say like, not only do you you get the right to own your birth experience and those choices and your choices after, but you have the right to own the knowledge about all of your health and to understand your health from the moment you were born as a woman and, and till you die. (laughs) And so I wanted to talk a little bit how you kind of started teasing out those ideas of feminism in healthcare and women centered care, women driven care. Yeah, definitely. I think um, as someone who's not a mother and not planning on becoming a mother, I um, am still a woman who experiences my own body and experience healthcare. And I have seen so many people go through a process of once they become pregnant and um, decide to parent, for some reason, there's this transition of, well, now I want to have a lot of ownership over what's happening to my body or what's happening to mm-hmm. my baby or the health that's being provided to me. And um, I'm not quite sure what it is that causes that big shift, whether it is a mother transition or a parent transition um, that people go through um, to say, well, I'm going to start to have more control or have more knowledge or have more say. Um, but really, I think it's so important for everyone to have that regardless of uh, what healthcare they're seeking. And so I'm so glad that comes across in my writing because I think it's incredibly important, um, particularly in the realm of gynecologic care. And I'll, I'll just pause for a second and say, I'm very conscious of gendered language. Um, I take care of and I'm friends with and have midwife colleagues who, um, don't identify as women. Um, and not every person who becomes pregnant or has a baby identifies as a woman or identifies with the language of being a mother. So, um, I'm just sort of saying that because I do use very, um, gender inclusive and gender free language. Um, but once people come in for their care, um, really realizing we're getting really intimate with people's bodies and really intimate with, um, parts of their bodies that otherwise they use sexually or otherwise they keep very private or otherwise aren't discussed. They may have trauma around any, you know, there's so many complicating factors. 
absolutely, they have trauma around or they're just exploring on their own in a very positive way. And so I think there's a very full spectrum of how people experience their bodies and the conversations that we're having with them um, that can also be um, a place of making space for empowerment and making space for knowledge that can be that same shift. Like, okay, if we're going to start um, having conversations where you and I are figuring out the optimal health or your optimal goals for what's going on with your body, um, this too can be a place where you start to say, I want all of this information and I want to be in control of this. And how do we... Um, make sure that you're the person guiding me and what it is you want to talk about as the person who's honored to take care of you. Please tell me what's next and what you need. And that doesn't always work. I think not everyone is looking for that huge power shift. Um, some people just want to come in and have their yeast treated and they want to leave. Um, mm -hmm. And other people definitely want to take the time to kind of work through that. Um, that's not healthcare for everyone. I mean, part of being a midwife too is just meeting people where they are. That's one of the tenets of midwifery is to say, okay, what is it you need from me today? Do you want your depot and your yeast treated and you want to go? Great. I'm that provider for you? Do you want to sit down and explore where your clitoris is? And I'll sit here and hold the mirror while you walk yourself through that. Great. I'm the midwife for you. So really um, trying to figure out where it is that um, people are and what they need and what their own language is and um, being ready for um, all of that and hoping um, to make that transition possible in something other than mothering as well. Well, and you, you talk about how not everyone, you know, wants that, that maybe full experience we could call it, but the truth is, is it's a journey for everyone. And, and to be able to be part of that with, with women and with people is, is really important because, you know, maybe, maybe they do come in just to get their yeast treated, but you're the first provider they've ever had who talks to them in a, in a way that addresses who they are as a whole person. And so the next time they come, you know, for their, to get their yeast infection treated again, or for something, something either completely different, or, you know, something it could be something simpler or more complex, they're, they're going to be more open to, to that experience and to, to exploring that openness. And I think that, I mean, what Lars said is so true. And to be completely honest, you know, it's, it's something that I'm as, as guilty of, if not more than anyone else, like I really did not take care of my body until I, until I became pregnant the first time. I mean, it was not something that I did not have any ownership whatsoever over, you know, my, my, my like female body. I did not take care of myself. You know, I was prone to, I was prone to, um, you know, to urinary tract infections. I was prone to yeast infections. Those are things that I never, I would often like get infections and not take care of them for a long time. And they would get really bad. You know, it was just, I was so disconnected from that part of my body. And for me becoming a mother, I think all the, the reason that it happened for better, or for worse is that it just kind of, I had this sense of responsibility, like, Oh, I'm responsible to this other human being. So I need to take care of myself, but that's not what we want women to do. Right. Yep. As soon as, as, humanly possible if you're ready to, to take control of your healthcare, absolutely do so. And I think it's tricky. Um, and something that I'm starting to explore in my writing is it's not always safe for people to come in for care and say they want to take control of their healthcare. 
I mean, there are a lot of providers who aren't ready to transfer power, who are really unaware of how that works, um, or who um, are very stuck in a medical model of care where the provider has the knowledge, gives the knowledge in bits and pieces to someone whenever they think they're ready or when they think they deserve to have that knowledge. Um, and it's, it's not always a safe place for people to express that. And whether the example of that is in a birth plan, if someone comes into a hospital with a birth plan and that's very much um, seen as people expressing their desires, but it's also complicated in the medical world for someone to come in and say, well, here's what I want. And I'm telling you exactly what I want. That can feel very threatening to providers. The concern is, well, what if it doesn't go that way? What if things um, change and become dangerous? Are they flexible in their birth plan or not? And there can be a very panicked response, particularly by physicians, I would say, in my experience, where people are like, well, okay, well, but what, but what, but what if something else happens, but what? And the, I think it's just such a perfect example of how people struggle, providers in particular struggle with patients or clients or people coming in for care, seeking to reclaim some power. It can, it's, it's a hard, it's like a, a tectonic shift that people go through that, um, if you're ready, then great. Um, if you're not ready, it can be very scary whenever people start to reclaim their power. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've heard women share, and I know this from my practices alert and labor nurses that sometimes that fear like manifests as hostility. Yeah. It's like people don't like it enough that they actually re- respond to it with like, what do you know about it? It's like, well, you know, what, what, what does it cost to hold space for someone? Like what, what personal cost is that to, to let someone have ideas and have hopes and to support them? I think it's small, but it feels big to people like you're saying. Well, I, I mean, I've tried to take a lot of time to observe and be patient when I've seen students go through that process, when I've seen other providers go through that process. I think it, I think it costs a lot more than maybe, um, I agree. It should be simple. It should be very easy to say, you know, sit down with someone and ask them what their plans are and make sure that they know all the options and do your, do your due diligence as a provider to share risks and benefits and your concerns. And then people make their choices. I think, um, the, the risks to that are one time, Um, I think a lot of providers worry, particularly if you work in a setting that's very busy, which is the story for every setting that I've worked in. Um, If you're very busy, there's no time. So I I can have from zero to eight patients at any point in time. Um, And again, I, as someone who tries to transfer power, I realize that patient, the word patient has a lot of, um, power laden language for sure. Um, I think a lot of the people I take care of would identify themselves as patients, but again, it's a language issue, but, um, for the people who are coming in for care, if you're very busy, it's, it's hard to sit down and say, everything that you think needs to be said to make sure they understand that you're holding space for them. And if you have any questions at any point in time, let me know. And, um, here's what I'm here to do. And I want to make sure you're in control of the situation. And, um, on the blog, something that I was doing for a little while that I'll come back to, um, writing were scripts 
and giving providers specific scripts of things to say um, in different scenarios to make sure like, okay, here, I only have 15 minute visits just like everybody else. And I have worked very hard to try and come up with language that covers all the bases that I think are important and allows a transfer of power and um, gives people an opportunity to say their, say their needs to the extent that I think has worked for the people I take care of. And I think time is a big issue. And so I've tried different ways to work around that negotiation of time for clinicians. I think the other issue is providers aren't trained. They are not trained to know how to do that. Um, I think midwives are very well trained. <laughs> um, it's, it's part and parcel of the midwife world to figure out how to be present for different people in different scenarios, um, but always find ways to um, break down a power model. Now, all, all midwives are not very good at that. Um, I think acknowledging that midwifery training exists in a very complicated historical place um, in midwifery history has been very effective at whitewashing itself. So um, if you look back at the history of midwifery, depending on who's writing it, a lot of people will start and say it was the midwives on horseback. And that is not true. Um, Native American midwives and black midwives in the South, um, referred to as grand midwives, um, absolutely held knowledge far prior to anyone who was white holding knowledge in this country. Um, and specifically the history of midwifery comes from a place of, um, those, um, midwives of color holding that knowledge. And then the medical model, medical model starting to come to be for white wealthy men, um, really never started with obstetric and gynecologic care. It started with other fields and then moved into that. Um, and they worked very hard to take away, um, the um, respect and the trust and the history that the midwives of color had developed in the South to undermine them, um, men, white men started um, claiming that knowledge, even though they had no knowledge about it whatsoever. And so midwives were wiped from the scene and um, physicians um, created a nurse model whereby women could be involved in healthcare, but in a diminutive role, um, essentially serving the physician. Um, and then midwives were slowly brought back into the fold, but within essentially a white patriarchal model that developed nursing that then rewelcomed midwives. And so midwifery, our training is as much as it is a reclamation of knowledge, as much as it is um, very much being with people in their healthcare experiences, um, the obstetric and gynecologic knowledge that we hold is very much based on a white male system. And I think working as much as we can to continue to acknowledge that, to continue to acknowledge that there are way more white midwives um, than there are midwives of color. And why is that? And why does this continue to be a very white profession um, and a profession dominated by certain knowledge bases in certain communities? Um, and so as a white person working in a community of color, um, there are clients and people seeking care who very much want to be taken care of by midwives who look like them. And 
that absolutely makes sense and is um, incredibly important for us to work to as a profession to make sure um, that those people are part of that. And I think then kind of coming back to the topic of not all providers have that language, thinking about the fact that really white people don't have really good language for how to be with other people and not necessarily hold the power in a space. We're raised to know that power and to always have it. And it takes a lot of work. And in no way am I saying I'm perfect at it and I've figured it out. I think that no matter what, it's a learning process. But um, trying to find a way to say, I mean, not only am I holding the power in this room as the healthcare provider and how am I working to break down that power specifically, but then also as a white person in a space caring for people of color, I need to be working on that also. Um, so I, I think generally if you're working in a population of providers who are white and educated, um, and pretty much everyone has learned essentially what is, um, white male knowledge, and that's what we're using in our healthcare environment. Um, that's also, that's a whole lot of stuff to work past to then be able to take good care of people and provide good consent and all those things. So, um, it's, it's a lot of knowledge to get beyond the clinical knowledge that people are already working very hard to be good at and to stay up on. And, um, it's, I think it's a lot, um, it feels like a lot for me, um, at times, but, um, it's important work and, um, it's, it's, um, it's everything to providing good care. So I think those are two really big things. Time's a huge thing. And I think most providers would say time first, but language and the work to break down a lot of, a lot of that history is really hard. Okay, so today's episode is brought to you by Expectful, a guided meditation and mindfulness app for your fertility, pregnancy, and motherhood journey. And last week on March 5th, we did a special episode with one of the co-founders of Expectful, where we talk about how beneficial meditation is no matter where you're at on the journey. So if you head over to expectful.com slash motherbirth, you can get an exclusive one month free trial for motherbirth listeners. And if you sign up using that link, motherbirth will also receive a small commission. So we thank you so much for your support. If you join this month in March, you can also participate in our 30 Days of Mindfulness where we're going to be sharing our own experiences of exploring meditation. We're going to do check-ins with you. We're going to actually have some live guided meditation and we're going to do Q&As. That's all going to be via Facebook Live. So if you head over to the show notes of this episode on the blog or connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll be able to see more details on how you can participate in that. So again, head over to expectful.com slash motherbirth and sign up for your free trial so you can start meditating and participate with us in our 30 days of mindfulness. Ego seems like another thing. You know, when, when you think about just even using the word power, like we're using, there are many people, certainly within, you know, certainly within this white patriarchal model that we're talking about, but even people that who don't necessarily ascribe to that larger model. And yet there's still, there's still a sense of, you know, like our ego really drives us to, to seek that power. And I think that it's, it's hard to let go of that, even when you want to, you know? Definitely. And I think the medical model, in my experience, not ever as a medical student or a resident, but as someone who works often with them, um, ego is something that is built up in them from day one. 
You need to be confident in what you're saying that builds confidence in the person you're taking care of. You need to always know what you're doing. And I think when a patient um, or a fellow provider, particularly a midwife who's seen as a lesser type of provider, if if your care as a physician is questioned or challenged, um, that that ego if that's the word they would use for themselves or not, I think it's a good one, particularly if we're talking about a white male profession. I think that that ego and that that hold on power, um, it's a scary feeling to have, to feel like power is being taken away from you. Yeah, I've experienced that myself for sure in in a healthcare setting, you know, whether, whether whatever kind of provider it is, I've, I've experienced that so many times. Yeah, and it's, to me, it's very scary. I to to think about for myself and to think about for the people I I care for in my life, my family members and my friends, numerous people have come from healthcare experiences and said, you know, something felt really weird or really strange about that. And when I asked a question, it really seemed to upset the provider. And so I just stopped asking questions. And so whether or not the provider was um, sort of identified as male or female, um, people in my life who are very strong-willed and very intelligent and very opinionated as there's something about entering the healthcare setting where people are like entered into also some sort of state of deference or a state of intimidation. Yeah, that's a good word too, for sure. And um, it's scary to me that exams that people have agreed to do because they felt like that's what the provider thought was important, even though they themselves disagreed. Um, and I, one of my biggest passions and something that I write about often is um, my concern about violence against women in the name of healthcare. And um, I think that that exists on a spectrum of, um, for example, for example, what happened with Larry Nasser. Oh I was so um, interested to see if he would bring him up. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I, I wrote an editorial about it Did you really? um, recently because it's, it's so upsetting to me yes. that in any way, what he, his rapes and assaults against all of those women, that if, if that is even said in the same breath as gynecologic care, I think that it's, it's scary for me as a professional who works in that, in that field that what he had done to people, could it all be considered about how I care for people in the same, in the mm-hmm. same thought. Right. And so, um, I wrote about it because I'm, I'm incensed over the fact that our profession is not talking more about, um, what he did and how wrong that was. Um, and so that's to come and I will absolutely be advertising that as soon as it's out because I'm, I, I think it's so important to talk about, what he did was not um, healthcare, first of all. It was not gynecologic care in any way. Um, but I think what it it does for me and someone who's talked often about the nuances, pardon me, the nuances between gynecologic care in particular that we do for people, whether it's an internal exam or an external exam, and it also overlaps with, for example, cervical exams and labor. We're entering people's bodies. 
and we are entering people's bodies um, during times when perhaps they're feeling very vulnerable or without a lot of power, without a lot of voice. Um, and we're entering people's bodies in similar ways to how they have sex and how they experience intimacy with their partners. And um, we do a whole lot of work as healthcare providers to make sure that the care that we're providing in no way mimics that intimacy or that sexuality that they perhaps are um, experiencing elsewhere in their lives, no matter what we do, it's an intimate experience. So we go above and beyond with our language and the way that we touch people and, um, the instruments that we use and the sounds that we make and things, everything that we do, we work very hard to make sure, um, that on a general scale, things that we do are not mimicking sex. And I, I, what he did is, um, it's so as a sexual assault survivor, it's so unspeakable to me that what he did overlaps with gynecologic care. And so I'm going to be talking and writing a lot more about that because it's, it's, um, appalling to me that, um, gynecologic providers aren't talking more about it. But I do think that that exists on a spectrum of, you know, what he did to women in the name of healthcare in his mind or in other people's minds, how they had interpreted that to be. But then also thinking about, forced cervical exams in labor. And somehow we're telling people, this is important for how I'm taking care of you. So I'm going to do this, even if it's painful for you, or even if you don't want me to. Even if you didn't know I was going to. Exactly. Or if you have an epidural and you really didn't even know that it happened. Um, I think absolutely that's violence against women in the name of healthcare. I think that, um, women undergoing pelvic exams during surgeries for the purpose of medical student education. That's violence against women in healthcare. I think that the way that we consent people um, for things, if there's any nuance of um, coercion in that consent, whether it's telling someone they need a C-section and why and omitting certain information, um, I think that manipulation that we do over um, people's knowledge bases that's violence against people's bodies. We're doing something against their body that they didn't necessarily consent to. Um, and so that's something that um, I've, I've been pretty fired up about ever since I um, started working as a midwife. I was working in a hospital setting where it seemed like my only role as a midwife was to try and decrease blatant human rights violations against people's bodies. And otherwise I felt like I was you know, running from room to room and just trying to help catch babies <laughs> so that people weren't having babies alone. <laughs> really, I didn't feel like I was doing a whole lot of, you know, one-to-one -one or one-to-five <laughs> midwifery care. Um, it just, it felt like I was there to really keep challenging other providers and questioning the system and finding gentle ways to do that. Um, but then realizing that there are so many different ways that women's bodies and minds and um, birth experiences and gynecologic experiences are at the hands of people who really don't have good training on trauma-informed care, who don't have good training on, on power transfer, who don't have good training on... Um, making space or holding space for people. Um, and it, it's sometimes it's really scary to me to think, okay, these are all the ways that maybe things are going wrong. Um, but then it's, it's really exciting to me to think about all the opportunity that we have to create really good 
intentional, conscious providers. And I can't speak highly enough of midwife students who just, I'm going to cry thinking about it. They fire me up all the time. And they're so, they're coming to this field with so much passion and so much um, thought and care for how they want to take care of people. And it's wonderful. And I've had incredible medical students who come with the same. Um, and it, I mean, it just, it's so great. And residents, I mean, they are in such a hard time and they're so challenged. And, um, even when everything's working against them, they'll, they'll do everything they can to help somebody have a baby on hands and knees, even if they don't really know what they're doing, because they think that it's the right thing. And it's just, there's just so much, um, there's so much goodness coming to our field. And I, I don't know if it's a generational shift. I don't know if it's um, kind of the ebb and flow of people reclaiming their bodies. And if we're in the middle of like a, a 1970s kind of healthcare revolution of like the the person owns the power and they they own the knowledge of their bodies. What I'll take it, whatever it is, I will whatever take it. it. Um, exactly. I mean, it's, it's felt really great over the past couple of years that um, it seems like more people are interested in kind of saying the same things that I'm saying. So I don't feel unique or special anymore, which is absolutely fine with me. I would love for more people to be saying the same thing. No, I absolutely agree. And I think one of the things that I just resonate with and also just wanted to mention is that, you know, I think about this as a nurse and how many times I've had people come in and they don't even know what a cervical exam is. And I always ask that question, like, you know, has anyone ever checked your cervix before? Do you know what a cervical exam is? And I'm just shocked sometimes that people say they don't and then they have had one when I look back in the documentation or that they couldn't just, you know, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to describe it to you. And, you know, it's like when you describe it in words, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to digest if you don't, if you've never had one and, uh, you know, it gives space and asks people if they're comfortable. And I just, you know, I had one, you know, woman say to me, no one has ever asked me that before. This is my third baby. And I was like, oh, well, you know, and, and it's those kind of things where it's like, I heard someone else do that. It, this is not my original, like I didn't have any like epiphany moment. I heard a provider that I respect and who offers respect and transfers power ask that question. And I was like, man, that's such a great question. How many people do I come in that, especially because I do, I do triage a lot. How many people come in that I really give them their first cervical exam of their life, like a digital, you know, exam. And so for people to really kind of you know, and, and that takes five seconds, you know, it's in, in, towards our time, you know, what is true about our time. But I think about things like that and kind of what you're saying, this renaissance maybe of like people, people becoming in charge of their care and, and providers giving space for that. And I want to um, give space for you to talk about queer health and how you see yourself as um, providing health as a midwife in that space. And I would love to hear you talk about communities that are receptive and things that are going on that are really positive and maybe some things that, um, some resistance that you've faced. So I work um, at the University of Illinois, as mentioned, and that's where I attend birth. And um, we have a system at the University of Illinois um, for people who work in healthcare. I work in a federally qualified health center, um, which is either subsidized by the state or the government to provide healthcare to people on um, public aid or people who are uninsured. Um, we also see people with insurance, but in my clinic, um, 
it's probably my patient population is 70 to 80% Spanish speaking only. And as a Spanish speaker, I feel very passionate about working in that community. Um, and I don't have a very large queer population. Um, and for people who are unfamiliar with that word, um, I use it um, personally to de- describe myself, but also try to use it as an umbrella term um, to mean people who are um, lesbian, gay, trans, um, bi. And not everyone uses that word in the same way. So I'm describing it um, to make sure people understand how I'm using it uh, personally. Um, and um, I do have. As someone who's out as queer, um, I do have people who have sought me specifically um, who identify as lesbian, who want to be seen by someone else in the community and so have a subset um, Hispanic lesbian population who do see me. Chicago is a wonderful city for queer and trans care and there are specific um, clinics where typically people go for um, hormone affirmation therapy um, or for... um, surgical affirmation for their um, identities and their bodies. Um, So I don't have a trans population I see. However, um, I work in, um, I also volunteer on um, uh, the American College of Nurse Midwives Board of Directors. And I've been on that. Um, This will be my third year and um, work to um, I'm chair of the Gender Equity Task Force is what it's called um, within that organization to ensure um, that midwives are talking about and aware of um, our trans populations and um, working toward creating better resources for the midwife community who are taking care of trans people. Um, and as someone who doesn't really have a lot of that in my population, I do have a group of awesome, passionate people who are midwives who are working in trans care, um, who are doing incredible work and putting those resources together, which has been great. Um, and then kind of the other subset of my life is, um, I'm a chair of the board for an organization called nurses for sexual and reproductive health, which, um, is a resource home for um, nurses and nursing students um, who work in abortion care and are trained, um, getting trained or are trained in abortion. Um, And then also in Chicago for the Midwest Access Project, um, which trains um, family practice physicians and nurse practitioners and nurse midwives in abortion care and sexual and reproductive health. And so I I kind of bring up that, that bigger piece of work too, because, um, Really, I think that midwives in particular, like um, you mentioned at the beginning, whenever you say midwife, people think birth and think um, prenatal and postpartum and that's specific to our work. And um, that, in fact, is not true. Um, A lot of midwives work specifically in gynecologic care or work in menopause care or just in family planning or just in abortion care. Um, And so there's a wide breadth of the work that we do. And um, I I love attending birth and I think birth is fantastic. Um, I also, um, I'm really um, fired up about um, gynecologic care and pelvic care um, and kind of all the parts that go along with that. And I think that um, to the degree that someone can feel vulnerable and in need of um, a provider who's fully present for them and caring for them in birth. I think that same, um, that same need exists during abortion care or 
exists during their first pap smear or their first pelvic exam or their first period or the first time they have sex or the first time that they realize maybe they're not straight like everyone thinks that they are. And I think there are so many different ways to be present with people as a midwife. Um, and, um, I love all of it (laughs) and I'm fired up about all of it. And I feel very thankful to, um, kind of have my hands in a little bit of everything, um, in terms of the writing and, um, the leadership and, um, really getting people to think about, um, all the different ways that people do midwife, um, and kind of to speak specifically, to queer care for, for myself or for the people that I take care of. I think that, um, the, the assumption that everyone who comes in, um, seeking care, everyone that you meet every day is straight is not a correct one. And, um, as, um, a woman who exists in the world where my body is kind of always under scrutiny or under observation, um, as a survivor of sexual assault, as someone who, um, is, is out. Um, I, I think that, um, I also exist in a space of being nervous about, um, what people are going to be doing to my body and, um, thinking about going in for my own healthcare. Um, it's, it can be kind of an, a nerve wracking experience. And, um, I, I talk and write a lot about trauma informed care and how we're always using language that um, makes people feel safe and doesn't overlap with anything that perhaps an, an abuser might have used for, um, language or touch. Um, and sexual assault is much higher in the queer community, um, and much higher in communities of color. And so anyone that I'm taking care of, I come from a place of assuming that they've probably been assaulted at some point in their life. And I think that makes it very easy for me to work to transfer power in those circumstances. Um, and additionally, I, um, I think being someone who's, who's had, um, uncomfortable exams and uncomfortable sexual experiences that were totally consensual and uncomfortable sexual experiences that were not consensual and kind of that spectrum of things. Um, I don't think that you necessarily have to have experienced something to be empathic toward it or to provide good care in that specific scenario. Like I've never had a baby, I've never been pregnant, um, but I can be with someone who's having an abortion or I can be with someone who's having a baby. Um, and I, I think that I give good care, even though I have, haven't been through those things specifically. Um, I, I, I do think that there, there's something, um, to be said for, um, really working hard to, um, share why there's language that I use or don't use, or there's approaches that I use or don't use. Um, and, and, and so I think I've spent a lot of time thinking about that and trying to find ways to communicate that to other clinicians and why it's important to, to do things in a certain way, because even if you yourself are not triggered by a certain word or a certain movement, either other patients I've had have been, or, um, other midwives have expressed that that's something that's important to them. And um, so I think as, as students start to develop their language, as medical students and nurse practitioner students and residents develop their language and, and get comfortable in their language and then have somebody walk in and say, you should really make sure you're never pushing someone's legs open. You should never do that ever. You can always use your words to tell someone to, to move their legs or... Um, 
I, I think it can be really jolting to get into a groove and feel good and not have ever had someone respond to you wrong when you've done something and then have a provider come in and say, you know, put the brakes on that. It's really important that you never do this thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it can be scary to someone to say, wow, like I've, I've never been assaulted. And so I've never thought about that. And students have responded in that way. And I think that's a healthy way to respond. Like, okay, let me, let me think about that. Um, but in terms of language, I think there are um, maybe generational differences and concerns about language. Some people think, oh, you're going too far. Like really saying that you can never say the word relax, like that's going way too far. So you can't, can't take a word the, away the word relax because that's just too much. Whereas generationally, I think new providers coming in say, you know what, language is really important. And um, of course there are other words you can use. So what's the big deal? Um, and and so I think for me, all of that kind of exists in sort of this um, whirlpool of how to take really good care of um, of people, assuming that people are coming from a place of trauma whether or not they have, if you assume that you're going to come from a good place. Um, and really that then helps you to challenge any assumption about them. Um, and really, if anything, that's a power transfer. Like you have, you have no knowledge about them because you're not assuming anything. So then you have to ask it and you have to check in. And, um, and I think that's just, that's part of, um, being a good provider all around as much as you can be. Well, I would love to hear from you because we have so many women who listen to the show who are mothers, um, but we've also have a lot of women who listen to the show who are healthcare providers in, in some aspect or another. They may be doulas, they may be nurses, they may be midwives. Um, and I'd love to hear from you your perspective on what it looks like to transfer power. And I know that that's such a big and loaded question. And like you talk about, it's like years of training a midwife and how to do that. But just even if we could talk about just, you know, kind of as we're, as we're winding up here, just some of the, some of the bigger themes or, or even postures that, that a care provider can have as they, you know, as they approach people from that perspective. And then also what it looks like for, for someone who is seeking healthcare, what it looks like to take that power. Sure. Um, it is a big question. Um, but, but a fun one too, to think about. Um, so in, in thinking about, for example, someone coming in for a pap smear. So if, if you are a provider and you're walking into the room and you see on the schedule, someone is there for a pap smear. Um, I have a very busy clinic day as do most midwives. Um, and I would love to just have someone who's there for a pap smear because then maybe that means the visit's going to be easy or quick or, um, have just one topic of conversation. Um, however, I always try to walk into a room and not assume that that's everything that's about to come up today. Um, or that that's even the actual reason. Maybe that's just what they Mm -hmm. told the person at the call center when they were being put on the schedule. So walking into the room, sitting down, um, at least, uh, at eye level to that person or below. So if they're on the exam table, making sure I'm sitting down. Um, so just that physical power transfer is a big deal. Um, and then asking people, well, introducing myself and um, asking them why they're there and not necessarily saying, I see on the schedule you're here for a pap smear. Anything else on your mind today? Um, and really being conscious of how 
and who is leading the conversation. So sitting down to say, what's bringing you in today? And kind of letting them lead that. Um, and then saying, other than that, is there anything else that's on your mind today? And I start there before I ever log into the computer, before I ever look at the computer and type into it, I sit down and I talk to people first. And of course, I need to go through and check the boxes for history and um, medications and allergies and I, we will fill those things out, but starting and sitting and looking directly at someone for a while and figuring out what brings them in and what's their concern um, is one of the main one of the main things. When it comes to the exam itself, um, before I ever do an exam, I talk people through what that entire exam will look like. So if they're there, let's say for their pelvic health, also talking about needing to do. Um, a breast or a chest exam and chest is considered a more inclusive term because not everyone identifies that part of their body as a breast. Um, so doing that exam, um, sort of talking through, you're going to put one arm over your head and I'm going to um, move my hand along, including over the nipple and checking for any discharge um, and saying, you know, is there anything that I can do that would make you more comfortable with that exam? Or is that something you'd rather do a different visit? Um, and I will give specific examples to say, is there anything that I can do? Or do you want to do it a different visit? Because then that gives someone an opportunity to say, you know what, not today. Like I'd like to do that a different time and making that equally as okay um, as choosing to do the exam that day. Um, related to the pap smear or any internal exam, um, walking people through, showing them everything um, that would be used, like the speculum and the gel and um, sort of the swabs that go along with the pap smear, because I think that can sort of break down the fear of what happens during that exam specifically. Um, and then depending on the person you're taking care of, some people prefer to insert their own speculum. Um, if that's if their main concern is the fact that the speculum is really uncomfortable or the provider um, usually misses because maybe they don't have a good approach for making sure that they're inserting the speculum in a comfortable way. Um, so I have patients who prefer to insert their own speculums and that goes very well. And once they've inserted it, I may move it around a little bit to get to the cervix, but that's one way to have someone feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, some of my, um, patients prefer to hold a mirror and kind of watch along with what I'm doing. Um, and that gives them the opportunity to see their own body in different ways and to ask questions as I'm doing things. Um, but also gives me accountability, um, at least from their perspective, like they can see everything I'm doing. There's nothing fancy. There's nothing special that I can do without them seeing. Um, and a lot of people like that. Um, and then, um, making sure before the exam starts saying, you know what, I realize that you're in a position that maybe it could feel like you don't have the ability to stop the exam or you don't have a lot of power to tell me what to do. I need you to know that that's not the case. At any point in time, you can tell me to stop and I will respect that and I will stop. Um, or you can tell me if something's pinching or hurting and I'll offer to do something differently. Um, and I think this is the most important thing that I tell fellow providers and students. If you say that you'll stop when someone says stop, you have to stop. Because there will be a lot of providers who will say, like, let me know if there's anything I can do different. And then the patient will say, stop, that hurts. And the provider will say, almost done. And we'll just continue. Um, and that's 
incredibly inappropriate and violent toward people's bodies. And it's not okay to do that. If someone says stop, you have to stop, whether you're almost done or not. Um, And I think that can be really hard in labor or during an exam when you know you're almost done. Um, So from the provider perspective, you really only have another second to go, but um, you have to respect people saying what they need and when. Um, And then after the pap smear, the speculum exam, um, asking people, is there anything that I could have done differently? So let me know, like, now that we're done, is there anything that was painful, anything that could be different? And then finding a way to put that in the note um, to let people know. Um, In the example of someone being in labor um, and coming into the room and say, for whatever reason, it would be a good idea to check their cervix. You as a provider or a nurse can know I need to check their cervix. If something's going on with the baby, if something's going on with the labor, if it's been a really long time and you're concerned about what's happening, you can know that that would be a goal. But ultimately, um, what I'll try and do is walk into the room, again, sit down. I think particularly when people are laying in bed or sitting on a labor ball, um, we tend to stand because there may not be a lot of chairs in the room, but finding a way to sit down. Um, to be at a similar eye height to people, and then not starting with what your need is a pro- need is as a provider. So not starting by saying it's time to check your cervix. How are you feeling? Or you know I'm checking in. It's time. How are you feeling? Um, and kind of launching into your needs as a provider. I'll walk in, sit down, and say. Tell me how you're feeling or tell me what's going on. Even if I've been taking care of that person all day, even if I feel like we have a flow with each other, or if I'm meeting them for the first time, I'll walk in and say, tell me how things are going. How's your labor been feeling these past couple hours? What do you think is going on? How does the baby feel to you? Um, And really connecting with people. That's the whole point is to be with people and take care of them. Um, So giving time to do that and then saying, you know, what asking from the provider perspective of the person you're taking care of, what do you think we should do next? Like, what do you think is next in this process? And truth be told, a lot of people look back at you and say, well, what do you think? Like, you're the provider, you tell me. And so at that point you can say, well, this is kind of what I've understood is going on. And I think a good next step would be to check your cervix or, um, to change positions or offering that at that point. If, if the person you're taking care of hands it back to you, that's okay to take. Um, but hand it to them first. So what do you, what do you think is next? And on the, on the flip side, a lot of people say, well, you better check my cervix because I need to know what's going on. And they're seeking that level of information. Um, but really giving it, it time, um, And then doing that cervical exam, similar to before starting the speculum exam, I'll let people know that at any point you need me to stop, let me know. And I'll say that specific quick phrase at the beginning of every exam. If it's the first exam I'm ever doing for someone, um, I'll let, I'll ask them, you know, how have these exams been for you? Are they really painful? Is there something in, in particular that's bothering you? And then they'll say, nope, they've been fine. Or they'll say, the whole thing's really painful. Or they'll say, it's really painful right when they get to my cervix and otherwise it's fine. Um, And so uh, one of the scripts um, that I go through myself for someone who has a painful exam in any way is to say, 
Okay, I have, I have two things that I want you to say if at some point it gets painful. If you say the word stop, that means I'm going to leave my hand where it is, but stop moving until you tell me that you're ready. And I will stop and just wait until you say you're ready to start again. If you say the word out, I'm going to take my hand out right away. So if we get to a point where you need my hand out, I'm going to take it out. And so I'll start the exam. And if someone either tells me physically or verbally, if their muscles clench down, I'll say, you know what? I can feel your body telling me to stop. So I'm going to wait for a second and then have them try and drop their muscles back down or release their muscles down. Again, trying not to use the word relax, but say kind of drop those muscles back down as much as you can. And then say, okay, you tell me when you're ready, not just starting back as soon as you feel someone's muscle release. Um, and if someone says out, take your hand out. It's very rare that a cervical exam is an emergency, that it needs to be done right away. Um, it's under very specific circumstances. That may be the case. Um, but otherwise, we should do everything we can to listen to people verbally, listen to their bodies when their bodies are telling us things. Um, and, and all of that should be considered equal to the rest of the care that we provide to them. Well, I think that that was just such a perfect way of describing the kind of care that you give, but really that, that transfer of power. And I love that you just gave specific examples because I think at the end of the day, that's really what people are looking for. And I think that from the perspective too, of someone seeking care, knowing that that kind of care is possible. I mean, that's incredible. And I think that most people don't know that it can be like that. And I think so many times what happens is, you know, like you said, it's you, no matter who you are, your personality or your, your affect for your own advocacy and other areas of life, healthcare becomes this frozen moment where you don't know how to have the, the power. And I just thank you so much for sharing specifically with people in our community, ways that they can ask for it. So maybe you don't have a provider who has ever used these phrases or made this space or understand this um, type of care, but now, you know, there's ways to ask for and to advocate for yourself with real language of like, can we, can we do an exam like this? And I, and I felt that way the first time I came across some of your, like your, she, um, Stephanie talked and we'll share a link obviously to her, um, writings about just the coaching and the language. And it's been good and revolutionary for me in, in my learning as well to kind of put language to things that I've thought about or questioned or seen. Like you said, you observe so much, um, in the roles that we have in healthcare of other people's type of care as well. And times when I felt really empowered to say something and times when I felt really silent myself and um, Stephanie's approach and passions and writing is geared towards anybody who's interacting with healthcare, even if it's not women's healthcare, these can be applied to any type of healthcare that you receive. And um, I just thank you so much for taking the time to share with us and to also just personally to thank you for doing all that you do. Being a midwife is an exhausting job and it's hard yes. to continue your personal passions um, uh, once you have a full load of work. And so I know that it has personal costs also to give your free time to passion. And I just want to thank you for doing that. And I think women's healthcare and midwives all benefit from um, providers who continue those passions into their career. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for saying that. It's so it's so um, fulfilling to do this work and to um, to feel like it it impacts not only me as a person, but also um, the people I take care of and the providers who are with me as students or the people I work in collaboration with. It's 
um, it's fulfilling, a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy um, all in its own way. So I feel very lucky to be doing it. Yeah, the cultural shift that's happening and the, and the professional shift that's happening is because of voices like yours. And I think that that can't be overstated. It really, really is. It really is because of the work that you're doing and, and others like you. So we are, we're so grateful to have you here today. And um, we just can't wait to share this conversation with our listeners. So thank you, Stephanie. Thank you both. This has been really great. Thanks for listening to Mother Birth today. If you want to be a bigger part of our community, you can follow us on Instagram at motherbirth.co or connect with us on Facebook, where we have all kinds of behind-the-scenes stuff going on. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate us in iTunes, which allows other people to find us and helps the show to grow. I think it goes without saying, but Mother Breast is a personal podcast created by Lara and Lisa. It's intended as general information. It doesn't constitute or substitute medical advice of any kind. You should always consult with your primary care provider with respect to your medical care. If you're pregnant, planning on becoming pregnant, or in the postpartum period.